What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is low-impact painter and climate optimist, Joel Provost. Her works have been featured in the Juby Art Center in Chicago, Good Mother Gallery in Oakland, Room Art Gallery in Mill Valley, and Space Room Gallery in Manhattan. She holds an MFA in studio art and integrated media from Brooklyn College. Provost has dedicated herself to using her art as a means for communicating issues of environmental degradation and other problems of our modern world. Joelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jesse. So it's my pleasure. I want to start with, help me understand this phrase from how you describe your work. What does it mean to be a, quote, low impact painter? Oh, thank you. This is a really fun question for me. Um, So essentially, I've been really inspired by the fashion Uh, the slow fashion movement that's been happening right now. Um, And there's even a documentary that's come out uh, called Textiles. Sorry, it's called Materials Matter. And um, there's a whole counter movement within the fashion industry where um, they're addressing textile waste, right, as a part of human activity and being problematic. And so I'm basically trying uh, really hard grassroots level to um, upcycle canvas. And um, I would even consider myself like this garbage disposal where everybody now knows my friends and my community, they know me as someone who upcycles. So they'll give me like their honestly like deceased hobbyist friends paint paintbrushes and canvas. And then if it's high quality enough, I will use it and I will paint on it. And this is my one of my stances, um, one of my ways to take a proactive stance in the art world from, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm meant to be a painter um, in boycotting something like cotton, for instance, which is what canvas is primarily made out of um, at Blick, um, to, not to point fingers, but um, so, so for instance, like 70% of the annual pesticides, I believe in America, are um, used for cotton. So this, I'm just going, if I can't, if I'm an ethical, you know, I'm such an environmentalist, why am I painting on this stuff that kills little bunny rabbits in the field? So, so that's, so when I say low impact painter, I'm really trying to do low waste painting. Um, So does that make sense? Kind of? Yeah, I really appreciate the description. I'm wondering also, I mean, you described how you use uh, upcycled materials and particularly like old paintbrushes and, and canvases. I'm wondering if there's some situations where you use other things not meant to be a paintbrush or not meant to be a canvas. Well, <laughs> that's a really fun question too. Thank you for already having great questions. Um, so, I mean, it just brings up this, I don't know if it's like totally tangential, but the fact that I totally paint, I paint outdoors and animals, like my animals have been a big part of my work because I don't really mind if nature has its way with my work. Um, and I made some paintings, sorry, some pen and ink drawings. I call them paintings. 
um, that that have sold that have been rained on and they look so beautiful and um, so but also just a like funny story that I think is totally related is it is this collaborative experience with the natural world so I do have bunnies right and they have hopped around on my works before and one patron came and starts looking you know I paint on my greenhouse starts like rummaging through all my paintings to find what I don't know what she was looking for but she was on a mission and she found this one painting and the wood on the back had been like totally devout like chewed on by my bunnies and she loved it and that's the one that she wanted so um yeah, I don't know. Just me in terms of mediums, like I'd say nature has a really big play. I don't like paint with mud or anything. People used to like <laughs> say, why don't you paint? You know, I'm not Andy Goldsworthy, essentially, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> and of course. And and yeah. what do you paint with? What is your... I'm paint? oil. I paint with oil. oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like butter. Oh, it's like butter. Um. I'm wondering, Joelle, if you can describe your creative process, what does it look like for you to get into your creative space? And that's like both physically and emotionally, but also just like, what is it? What do you do to get to let loose on canvas? Yeah. Um, So there's there's a really great book and I have to reference it. It's called Daily Rituals. I don't know if you've read it, but it's about all these noteworthy persons, how they get to work in a day. And the person who wrote the book, I'm forgetting her name. Um, or their name, what they were procrastinating on their writing. And so they were like, how does anyone get anything done? So the book was made by researching all these people throughout history, whether it was Oprah or Franz Kafka, how they got to work in a day. And so for me, like routine in the morning, um, I used to be so rigid about routine. And now I realize it's really important to like integrate community into your life and like have a life. But like, I basically running in the morning, you know, running like six to eight miles, drinking a bunch of coffee, and then um, listening to, to music, I have music that like really gets me going and to me like emulates nature. Um, and then um, just Basically, what I like to tell people is I'm not a baker, so I'm definitely not exact, but I'll have all these ingredients that are my concepts, and I put them in this stew, and I just kind of have to like basically pray that um, that they will come through on the canvas. So it's an act of faith for me of like sort of jumping off this cliff and, and going, okay, I hope I can execute them well enough because there's a lot of ideas in there, and I want them all on the canvas. So, yeah. So. Yeah, where do you get your ideas from? Your paintings integrate all kind of themes that include post-industrial collapse, food ethics, and current global news events, as well as like classic um, and more romantic style landscapes. How do you how do you choose the actual subjects of your paintings, and um, what do yeah. you choose to leave out? I guess is always a question I like to ask. Too. What do I choose to omit? That's a really good question. Um, Yeah, I guess I've gotten a little more simple as I get older, but I don't really, um, I, I, I guess I prefer to not, to let it all just to do that purge and let it all come out if it has to. And again, that's where the act of faith comes in. So for instance, I'll be, I'm a really big animal welfare uh, person. I've worked with primates um, and painted primates from the Congo and raised money for them and stuff like that. Um, But so I will, you know, um, 
be thinking about primates and then I'll also be thinking about like um, instant gratification and how humans are inherently hedonistic. And so I'll just kind of be obsessing um, obsessively, you know, ruminating on how to hybridize these. And it might take a month and it might take just a morning on a run and just this act of faith of hoping that all these things can come through. And that honestly, that my, that my viewers are intelligent enough to um, kind of can connect these disparate themes, because to me, it's all connected, right? It's all under this thing, like this epoch that we're living in the age of the Anthropocene. Do you know what I mean? So like, so like whether it is primates, you know, it's like, it's all related to our relationship with the natural world and how we've sort of um, just created this synthetic synthetically fabricated society to sort of shield us from, from our, the fact that we are a part of nature. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Basically they all just come out and I'm okay with that. And I've had, I had a lot of criticism about that in grad school, you know, that you have to pick a theme and stop trying to make meaning out of paintings. And I'm just so glad I didn't listen to anybody, you know, <laughs> grad school is a perfect place to not listen to anybody. <laughs> So, Joelle, we're on the radio now using only audio to convey information about your art, which is essentially visual art. And so this is a little bit of a funny question, but for people who can't see your work in front of them right now, could you pick a favorite piece of yours and describe what it looks like and both visually and also what do you see in it? What stands out to you? Yeah, thank you. Um so the one that keeps coming back to me is one that kind of spilled out of me one morning. Um, and it's called You Are the Swamp. And it was right when Trump got elected. Um, it just kind of feeling the oppression of um, the darkness of that. And the piece is inherently political. Um, it is about food ethics. And um, so I'm going to describe the piece first. Um, it's set 60 by 72 inches. So it's pretty large, six feet tall about. And, um, the painting is this trajectory from, um, it's a historical trajectory. So George Washington, um, it has, he's the hovering above a seven 11, uh, almost as if he is his own mountain. Um, and then out of his mouth is a Snapchat rainbow. So it's like sort of, again, like a trajectory all rolled up into one of what our, our four found, how we got here, how we got from colonialism, sort of this, this um, innate need for some, some of our species to divide and conquer. And then the trajectory from that to a similar type of exploitation, which is factory farming and um, just uh, this, the same mindset, I would argue like the mindset of colonialism is like totally embedded within late capitalism. Right. So again, like back to the painting underneath um, George Washington is a seven 11. And that's when I got really obsessed with seven 11s before I went to Tokyo and realized everyone else is obsessed with it too over there. Um, and, and then above, above George Washington are all these, it's really dark. They're all these slaughterhouse cattle. 
and they're floating away um, by balloons. And it's sort of this homage to the slaughterhouse cow and saying, um, you know, basically saying, I see you, I notice you. And that um, just saying a prayer for them, like, you know, we didn't even give them names and now they're on our pepperoni pizza at 7-Eleven. So I've sort of chosen 7-Eleven as this like really iconic, um, I call it an instant gratification trap, like place where you go in there and you're faced with this moral dilemma of do I buy, you know, just food ethics? Like, do I buy them, you know, the quality item or do I buy the cheap item because I can't afford the quality item? So so the paintings about the moral sort of the heaviness that the consumer has on their shoulders every time they walk into a store. Um, so again, you, as you can tell, this painting like has a lot, a lot of different concepts in one. So no primates in this one, but you know, it's got a lot going on. So as we know, as people who are progressive and radical trying to live in this world, we're living full of contradictions. So I want to ask you, if 7-Eleven is an instant grat- gratification trap, what's your favorite thing to buy at 7-Eleven? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's a funny question. Um, at 7-Eleven? Oh, my God. You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> Let me see. What do I... Well, I'm, I mean, I'm like... When I go into 7-Eleven, I'm one of those people that's like fake healthy, right? So I, I get my kettle chips, right? And like my coconut water. and But I still let... Like we all have this like relishing of Americana of like these themes, right? So I love just being in a 7-Eleven. But then... So I guess you could say that in my work too is like this battle, you know, of like, well, we don't all want to live off the grid. That sounds really hard. So how do you love and hate something at the same time? And how do you change it while existing within it? Like, you know, the iPhone is our third arm, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the inspiration behind your art, like both certainly artists that you have paid attention to and admired either currently and or historically but also like other people or organizations i know your art is very political other people or organizations that also give you a sense of inspiration in your art hmm well i'll start with artists um so i really love william kentridge because he's able to talk about the apartheid in Africa and heavy themes without um, being didactic. And that's why I love art. Um, And so I love him and I do love Andy Goldsworthy, but some contemporary artists that I really love are, um, I usually don't say his name because I have such a art crush on him uh, that I'm like, don't even say his name. It's Friedrich Kunath. He's like one of my absolute favorites and he's totally of our time. And I guess he came out of, a movement in Germany that was sort of, um, I'm going to butcher it probably, but it was like based on cartoon kind of um, having fun with painting and incorporating cartoons into painting, but he's very, very evolved. So he'll paint like really mature landscapes, but then write Morrissey lyrics in them. And, you know, so he's just like, he's, he's, he's everything good. And he's, he paints him very impasto, um, not political at all. Um, but just an incredible painter. Mm-hmm. And then what are other sources of inspiration for you in your art um, that aren't directly necessarily uh, like a, a, a painting inspiration? 
Yeah. If that makes sense. Totally makes sense. It just, I just need to, well, I really love the band Boards of Canada. Everybody who fought, like follows me on Instagram and knows me knows I'm obsessed with them and they're probably like rolling their eyes right now. Um, but Boards of Canada is my, it's pretty much like I'd say top three favorite bands. And like, I just have to try it. They're one of those bands you have to like try not to listen to all the time because you want to love them, um, continue to love them. Uh, so because they emulate nature the way that I want to in my paintings and it's not, um, it's it's not uncommon for like painters to want to emulate music in their paintings, but specifically Boards of Canada is really important to me to like, you know, they just have it down. You feel like you're in the wilderness, but you also feel that hybridization between um, a metropolitan place and um, this rawness of being in some cold, you know, high elevation place as well. So I really love them. Um and then, yeah, I mean, I love Amy Goodman and I love, I love women who, you know, like AOC, I am very like you, like, you know, pretty radical. Um, so I, I guess I, I, AOC is a great person to mention because to me, um, you know, I'm betting on her in 10 years coming back with a vengeance, um, when the whole world is ready for her. Um, and that's where the optimism comes in is like, if somebody like AOC exists, that's a really good sign, you know, because 20 years ago, she wasn't even, you know, even just 20 years ago, it, she, I don't even think she could have said half the things, you know? So, um, I definitely like, I don't like the saying the future is female. Cause I think it, it kind of tends to isolate, um, self-identifying men, but I do think that the future is in need of a matriarch. So all these women, um, who are trailblazers, some of which are at our gala, um, like Aditi Meyer and Kiana Kazemi. Um, those are the women that, that I'm just, I'm totally in awe of and, and just feel aligned with. Yeah. We are absolutely in need of more matriarchs. Um, I want to talk about your gala in just a few minutes. No I have a few more of, uh, other questions about your art. And also your own approach, you kind of mentioned this in your last response in how you described um, how you think about AOC. There's a phrase you've used in the past that really struck me, and that's part of why I wanted to talk to you today. You use the term climate optimism. Yeah. I personally and many people I'm close with have a hard time feeling optimistic about our climate for all kinds of reasons. Um what is climate optimism for you and where do you get the inspiration for it? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. And I do want to address like that. I, I, I'm not, I'm an optimist by choice, right? Optimism is a choice. Doesn't mean I mean, I uh, don't wake up and feel heavy heaviness some days, you know? Um, but basically I, it's, it's my fuel that keeps me going. I'm going to reference this um, interview with a, a scientist and it was that it, it was basically that this this scientist they were they were now discovering that in the Cretaceous period volcanoes this is a roundabout story but volcanoes were uh, thought thought originally to have caused global warming because they they're warm but actually the ash the volcanic ash was um used to actually cu covering like the planet like a blanket and it was it was actually um, mitigating climate change and so all these 
climatologists were going, wow, I guess we were wrong that it was mitigating climate change by creating this sort of, by keeping, I guess, the gases in the earth. And so why I bring that up is because it's one of those stories that I cling to when I'm, I know deep in my heart, you know, that uncertainty is all we have. And I don't think that it's a bad thing. So if we use that logic of saying, wow, we still have stuff to learn about the Cretaceous period, moving forward from the Anthropocene into the next epoch, um, why, why can't we apply that same uncertainty, which comes with curiosity about the future and, and using this logic, basically, um, why not put our best foot forward? Because that's literally all we have. All we have is today. All we have is to, is each other. Um, and so yes, things look very dark, but every time I talk to people like you, even if you don't feel optimistic, you are a doer, you are an activist, Jesse, like that gives me hope. So it's like within our, I mean, animals innately give me hope and nature innately gives me hope. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to ramble a little bit more and say, I'm working on a half an acre right now. We took 10 years to find a half an acre and I'm renting the half an acre to learn how to rehabilitate the soil and lower my personal impact. There's nothing that gives me more hope than being uh, with the plants because I see that even through this really hard winter with all the rain, plants are pretty resilient. I mean, not all of them by any means, but it really comes down to our species and, and when we, and willpower. And once we, I think there's so much power in um, collective grassroots change. And once we realize that, I think we can, I think we can, like, we're unstoppable, essentially. So I've had to really battle, like, um, kind of coming across like Pollyanna, because people are just like, you know, I don't want to hear it. But I really believe that hope is like, it's urgent. It's not hope is hope is not, you know, it's not like this cutesy thing. It's like, we need, we need hope right now. So. And that all goes back to where you started, which is that hope or optimism is also a choice. It's a orientation, right? Yeah, exactly. So with that in mind, I want to shift gears and talk about a group that you're involved with called we are the general public um and we are the general public is planning an event called the regenerative gala that's coming up on april 1st can you talk about the the organization and then describe the gala and its intentions yeah so so behind the the llc we are the general public is myself and coco lee and then we have a huge community helping us but we are um, the co-founders and Coco Lee is, um, I, I actually, it's ridiculous, but I found Coco through the hashtag regeneration because we were both coming from different sides of that spectrum. So I was working with the soil and regenerating the soil and really interested in regenerative farming. And then she was coming from regenerative fashion and working with all these brands that, that were addressing where textiles come from. Uh, so I quickly became fell in love with Coco and like became obsessed with her because she's like really trying to um, she's this ambassador and this content creator for all these regenerative and circular brands. Um, and I basically one day, you know, we'd have these long conversations and like 13, like really like we we're in middle school, 13 year old girls, we'd just be like giggling on the phone. I basically one of these days I was just like Coco. Um, I really think we need to create a physical space where we can celebrate brands and individuals that are putting their best foot forward um, for you know for the earth essentially. Um, where we it needs to be a celebration because 
there's that saying like people rem- you don't remember how you made them think, but they remember how you made them feel. So we went, we want people to walk away inspired um, to act essentially. So it will have an ethical runway at the gala. The gala is happening on April 1st of 2023 at Piedmont center for the arts. Um, and, and a main feature is the ethical runway, which Coco is um, or coordinating. And then I'm coordinating an art auction um, where all, all the, Uh, the majority of the proceeds go to either the artist or the agrarian trust. And they are um, an incredible nonprofit that is working to essentially democratize land. So create um, land equity and um, access across the United States. So I'm, I'm in love with them. And yeah, so the gala is just, it's a multifaceted event. We want to kind of cross fertilize as much as possible. Is there any other, um, projects that are going to be featured there that you're excited to share about? I know there's some of the themes that you all are talking about are regenerative agriculture, regenerative industry, and fashion as a vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we just got, um, I don't know if you're familiar with intersectional environmentalist Green Girl Leah, um, but her partner, one of the team members from intersectional environmentalist um, her name is Kiana Kazemi. She's doing a panel on hope for the future with Aditi Meyer, who is political fashion icon featured in Vogue and Elle and all these magazines. And, and they're going to do this unprecedented talk. I think they're really close friends. And and so talking kind of from, I think Kiana Kazemi is in, um, she's in engineering, but she's a climate activist. And they're going to talk about hope, how you, how they find hope from their corners of the world. So that's really exciting too. Joelle, how can folks follow up and learn more about the Regenerative Gala, get tickets, and also to follow your own art? Yeah, so the gala, you would go to our website and it's wearethegeneralpublic.com. We have an Instagram and it's wearethegeneralpublic. Um, And tickets are limited uh, and we're really excited because yeah, they're going fast. And, and yeah, we're just excited to, to see everyone in about a month. Um, and then for my art, you just go to joelleprovost.com. So it's my name, J-O-E-L-L-E-P-R-O-V as in Victor, O-S-T.com. Great. Well, this week's resistance in residence artist is low impact painter and climate optimist Joelle Provost. Her works have been featured in the Juby Art Center in Chicago, Good Mother Gallery in Oakland, Room Art Gallery in Mill Valley, and Space Womb Gallery in Manhattan. She holds an MFA in Studio Art and Integrated Media from Brooklyn College. Provost has dedicated herself to using her art as a means for communicating issues of environmental degradation and other problems of our modern world. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Jesse Strauss, and this has been Resistance in Residence for this week. Thank you so much for joining us, Joelle. Thank you so much for having me, Jesse. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. 